Well, if you would all turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, we're in Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 23 to 31 this morning. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 912, Acts 4, 23 to 31. And what we'll do is we're continuing where we left off last week. And this is really one continuous scene that we have from the beginning of chapter 3. And just to recap, Peter and John, they go to the temple to pray. And as they're going there, they meet a man who is lame from birth. And they heal this man. They heal him in the name of Jesus. And the lame man is, is instantly healed. And he is walking and leaping and praising God. And this, this healing amazes the crowds at the temple. And they want to know how it was done. They want to know what it means. So Peter explains to him that it was done in the name of Jesus. Jesus healed him. Jesus who was crucified and whom God had raised. And then Peter tells the people to repent of their sins and to, to, to call upon Jesus to come to him in faith. And the results of this is a revival. We see a revival in the temple. Verse 4 tells us about 5,000 men believed. But not only did this miracle heal the man and, and uh, Peter's explanation uh, caused a revival, it also led to persecution, persecution by the powerful religious and civic leaders in Jerusalem. And as we saw last week, Peter and John were, were put in jail for the night. They were charged not to speak any further about Jesus. They were threatened. And we know that these were not empty threats because these were the same men who arrested Jesus, who handed Jesus over to the Romans, who had Jesus crucified. And the only reason Peter and John were let go, really, was because the, the, the leaders feared the crowd. They feared that, feared that if they persecuted them further, this would cause a riot. But the animosity wasn't God, gone. The, the danger wasn't gone. And just like the leaders, when they, they came to arrest Jesus at night under the cover of darkness, the same possibility existed for Peter and John and the rest of the apostles. So we don't want to miss that there's real danger, there's real fear that existed in the disciples at this part. So this is the immediate context of this passage. So Acts chapter 4, verse 23 to 34, hear now the word of the Lord. <clears throat> when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. <clears throat> For truly in this city, were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the words of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you will give us boldness. Lord, when we face those things that, that give us fear. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us now. To open our hearts and minds to hear from you. 
Father, I need your spirit. I cannot say anything worth hearing without your spirit speaking through me. Father, we pray that you will be seen this morning and that you will be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a time of fear. We live in a time of stress, a time of anxiety. And we, and we know this personally. We feel it personally. There, there's a, a weariness. There's a, there's a weight, a, a burden that we, we can't seem to shake. I know this from ministering to other people. There's, there's this edginess, there's this uneasiness that makes sometimes everyday tasks, the, the normal task of living, just stressful. There's an underlying nameless fear lurking beneath the surface, striking at random, stealing our joy, crippling our effectiveness for the cause of Christ. And we know this personally, and statistics back this up. According to the American Psychological Association, we are a nation recovering from collective trauma. The effects of the pandemic just a few years ago, the deaths of 1.1 million Americans from this virus, the isolation caused by the lockdowns, the effects on the economy, the inflation, the stagflation, the social unrest, the steep political divides that we find ourselves in. There's other issues. There's, there's fear of global conflicts, fear of nuclear war, racial tensions, climate change. There's multiple things for us to worry about. But the majority of Americans, I, th I think the, for the majority of us, it's, it's money. It's, it's, it's our health concerns. These are the things that, that we're worried about. We're, we're, we're afraid. Can we, can we send our kids to college? Are we going to be able to retire? Are we going to even be healthy enough to retire? These are all things that are stressing us out. And the stress and fear are most pronounced really among the young adults. According, again, to the American Psychological Association data, it says 67% of people ages 18 to, th to 34 say that stress makes it difficult for them to focus. 58% say that most days their stress is completely overwhelming. 68% say their stress makes them have less patience with others and thus affects their relationships with others. 55% say when stressed, they can't bring themselves to be able to do anything. That's 55%. And this last one, 47%, nearly half, said that most days they are so stressed they can't even function. Think about that. Nearly half of people ages 18 to 34 said on most days they're so stressed they cannot even function. This is a huge problem. And it's not just the issue, the underlying issues such as money or, or health or social unrest or, or climate change that are the problem. Fear itself is the problem. See, these increases in stress and anxiety, they lead to increases in chronic illnesses, increases in mental illnesses, economic problems, social breakdowns, which in turn lead to greater stress, greater anxiety, and it leads us into this vicious, vicious circle of fear. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, in his first inaugural address in 1933, famously said, quote, Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. And the reality is, our reaction to fear and stress often leads to this paralysis, leads to retreat which not only leads to more fear, but as Christians, it steals our joy. It's, it prevents us from fulfilling our calling to be witnesses for Christ. And while we certainly live in a stressful and fearful time, we, we worry about our health, we worry about 
our, our finances. But for the most of us, for the vast majority of us, our fear is nothing like that which was faced by Peter and John. The intensity of the danger that the disciples faced in this passage that we just read. See, they faced being kicked out of the temple. And that was the, the central component of their religion. They were no longer able to do that. They were in danger of being imprisoned, being beaten, maybe even killed for their faith. This was the reality facing the apostles in this passage. This is the stress and the fear that they faced. And what we see in this passage is an antidote to fear. If we, if we could just internalize the, the message that we see here, I, I think it would revolutionize our lives. I think it would, it would bring a, a, an end to the crippling fear that grips our culture, even grips us in the church. So let's start off. Verse 23. It starts with Peter and John released, and they return to the other disciples, and they report what had happened to them. They spent the night in jail. They were threatened by the chief priests and the, and the Sanhedrin, by the elders. They were threatened by the most powerful people in their culture. And they were warned clearly not to speak about Jesus, not speak in the name of Jesus. But this command, this command is in direct opposition to Jesus' command that was given to them. Remember the theme verse of the whole book of Acts? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is what Jesus commanded them to do. And these powerful people commanded them to do the exact opposite. But then we see Peter. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 8. He tells them that we have to listen to God. We can't listen to you. We have to listen to God. And we cannot but speak what they have heard. And as we talked about last week, this boldness and this courage, this was not native to Peter. As Mike read for us in our gospel reading this morning, we heard how Peter denied Christ, how denied him three times when Jesus was arrested. This is Peter's natural disposition. But the boldness that we see, the boldness was because Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. But what about now? What about now that the confrontation was over? How would Peter and John feel now? How would the disciples feel after when they hear about this confrontation? I think they would have been terrified. I think they would have been afraid. I think they would have been filled with much stress. But the question is, would they let this fear spiral out of control? Would this fear cause them to retreat? Would it, would it cause them to seek uh, to avoid the persecution? Would it cause them to pray that, that all these problems go away, all this opposition go away, they have just smooth sailing? Now we see in here the reaction is prayer. The reaction is prayer. But I think it's a completely different type of prayer than the way most of us would pray. I know the way I would pray. If I was in this situation, I know exactly how I'd pray. I'd pray for the Lord's protection. I would pray that this problem goes away. I would pray that their leaders, that the Lord would supernaturally change the minds of these leaders that oppose me. I would pray for smooth sailing, that, that the Lord would remove any witness, any obstacle to my witnessing, and I would be successful. But that's not the way the disciples pray. How do the disciples pray? Well, the majority of this text that we read, this passage, this is a prayer. Verses 24 to 30 is a prayer. But we see a petition particularly in verse 29. So how do we pray? Take a look at verse 29. Part of it says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats, the threats of their enemies, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. See, the prayer is not a prayer for protection. 
from this persecution. It's not a prayer for successful ministry. It's not a prayer for ease in proclaiming the gospel. It's not even a prayer that their, that their audience would be receptive to the gospel. The prayer here is for boldness. Would we pray that? Could we pray for boldness? See, boldness is what was truly needed. Their biggest danger was not really the high priest. It was not the elders. It was not being persecuted for their witness. Their biggest danger was being intimidated into silence. Their biggest danger was retreating from Christ's commission to be his witnesses, which would happen if they gave in to fear. Roosevelt's words were very applicable to the disciples. Really, the only thing they had to fear was fear itself and boldness. The boldness for which they prayed, this is the antidote to that prayer. So how did they they get this boldness? How did they even get the desire to pray for boldness? As I said, my first instinct would not to be pray for boldness, but would be to pray for protection and for deliverance. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this prayer. We're going to look at the structure of this prayer. We're going to see how the, the structure itself leads to this petition for boldness. And the petition itself, the desire for boldness, is itself evidence that God is hearing and working through the prayer. So let's now walk through this prayer. Let's look at verse 24. It says, And when they heard it, when they heard it, heard what? Heard the disturbing news about Peter and John, how they were treated, how they were threatened. News that would have naturally caused fear and, and panic among members of this young church. So what's the first thing they do when they hear of this persecution. The verse continues. They lifted their voices together to God. They lifted their voices to God. And don't miss their first reaction to this news. Don't miss how important this first reaction is. See, their immediate impulse of of, of hearing this news, this troubling news, their immediate impulse was prayer. They didn't even give themselves time to worry, time to panic. They immediately went to the Lord in prayer. And this is crucial. This is crucial. We can't miss this. This must be our first instinct. Whenever we hear any of that troubling or stressful news, it must be to go to the Lord in prayer. And the reason prayer must be our first instinct, almost involuntarily, is because by immediately going to, to the Lord in prayer, we are connected to God. We then see the problem in light of God rather than in light of ourselves. And if we don't first go to the Lord in prayer, but rather we try to to figure it out ourselves, we will immediately become overwhelmed. We will realize that that we don't have the capacity. When we look at the problem, we look at ourselves, we don't have the capacity to solve this problem. And we're instantly then plunged into fear, plunged into panic. The problem seems so big, so big, and we see so small that it's so easy for us to get overwhelmed. And this is often the biggest reason why We are so plagued with fear and stress because we treat prayer, we treat God as a last resort. Don't you ever hear people say, oh, all you can do now is pray. All we can do is pray. After we have tried everything else, everything we can do, we then finally go to the Lord. By that time, the problem is so big and our fear and our panic is so big. But we must develop what I call a prayer reflex. Just like when you go to the doctor, you know, the doctor hits you at your knee with that little, that little hammer and involuntarily your, your knee will jerk, your, your leg will twitch. Well, when we experience something that is stressful, something that, that, that will, will frighten us, we must have that same reflex, involuntarily bring the issue to the Lord. 
And where then we will, we, will, we will see the issue in light of his power rather than in light of our own weakness. But it's not just any type of prayer. See, many of us have somewhat of a, a prayer reflex, but our prayers look different than what we see here. And the result, these prayers are not as effective as holding back this flood of panic that comes as a result of a troubling situation we may find ourselves in. So what do our common prayers look like? Well, often our instinct is to first focus on the problem. We bring the problem to the Lord. Now, that's good. We're bringing it to the Lord. And the Lord can, and he will answer it. The Lord can deal with this problem. But by focusing on the problem, what we do is we can still be overwhelmed by the problem. We still feel fear and panic because what we do is by focusing on the problem, we see how big that problem is. And we still see how small we are. But my friends, this is not the way the disciples pray. Let's continue in verse 24, looking at the beginning of their prayer. The disciples say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And do you see the fundamental difference right here? The fundamental difference between this prayer and the way we usually pray? This prayer starts not by focusing on the problem. It starts by focusing on the Lord, on the Lord. And when we focus on the problem, again, we get overwhelmed by the problem. The problem seems so big, which, again, will naturally lead to our fear and our anxiety. But when we start by focusing on God, when we see God in his proper perspective, we see that God is bigger than any problem we can face. As I mentioned with the kids as they were singing the song, God is bigger than the boogeyman. God is literally bigger. And when we see that, God is bigger than the, than the high priests and the elders that opposed the disciples. And just these few words that start this prayer, the disciples, they, they fill their mind with God. They fill their mind with the reality of who the God is they're praying to. And what are, what are some of the words they say? The God is sovereign. They're praying to the sovereign God. What does sovereign mean? Sovereign means he controls all things. Everything is controlled by him. There is nothing, nothing that he cannot and does not control perfectly. See, God's not taken by surprise by what happened to them. God is not taken by surprise at what is happening to us. It is all according to his perfect sovereign plan. In addition to this, the start of the plan reminds the disciples that God is not only in control of all things, not only sovereign, but he created all things. He created the heavens. He created the earth. He created the sea and everything in them. And I don't know if you ever looked up at the stars. If you look up at the stars, you just see how magnificent it is. And I love looking at, at, at modern um, astronomy and just learning. The, the things we see are, are, are nothing. You, you understand that, I, I just heard this recently, our, our galaxy, the Milky Way, from one side to the other is 200,000 light years. That would take light 200,000 years to get from one side of our galaxy to the other. And it's not the only galaxy. There are trillions of galaxies out there, each with trillions of stars. We, our minds cannot even grasp how big it is. But all of that was created by God. Think of the seas. Think of just, just the oceans, of, of how vast the oceans and how deep they are. There are creatures living at the bottom of the ocean that we don't even know of that are being discovered. They were all created by God. Do you see how this changes? This changes our perspective when we're focused on the God and how vast things are. And he has those controls. He is sovereign over all of these things. And we see how this starting point, by looking at God, it immediately changes our perspective. Immediately changes our perspective. Perspective. 
What is anything that is opposed to us? What is anything that is opposed to that type of God? This God who controls all things, who created all things, he was their God. He is their God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one for whom they are testifying, the one for whom they experienced persecution in the first place. As Scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Think about it. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the same reality is true for all of us, all of us who are in Christ, all who have been made new creations in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if you are Christ, this reality is true for you. God is for you. Who can be against us? And when we, when we internalize, fully internalize this truth that if God is for us, who can be against us? It will destroy anything, any fear that we can have, any fear that we can experience in this fallen world. Because everything is smaller. As we said, God is truly bigger than any boogeyman that we will ever face in this fallen world. If we are in Christ, God is truly looking out for you and me. He is for us. So this should be enough, right? This description of God as sovereign creator, this state's reality, and this reality should alone provide the needed boldness. This should be the end of the prayer. At this point, the disciples should be immediately filled with boldness that they seek. But the problem is fear is insidious. Fear is insidious. Fear will start to, to question this reality that we have about God. So how do you know that's true? Isn't it just wishful thinking that there's, there's this all-powerful God? That's a fantasy. We know that that's, a, that's, a, that's primitive people think of that. We're, we're more sophisticated than that. This, this problem in front of you, that's the reality, not this God. And the reality is that I'm weak. And fear wants to elevate the problem. Fear wants to take your focus off of God and put it back on the problem. Put it back on, on you and how weak you are and take your focus off of God. But the next part of the prayer that we see here answers this objection. It shows that we are not just making up the God that we want. It shows that God is not subjective, but, he, but God is actually objective. And we have an objective way of knowing him. And that way is through Scripture. And verse 25 shows us, in verse 25 I think is a very important verse. In the first part of verse 25, we get a very powerful doctrine of Scripture. Look at the first part of verse 25, just prior to the quote. It says, who? And here it's still speaking of the sovereign creator God, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And after this, he quotes Psalm 2, which was our Old Testament reading that Mike read for us this morning. So what this verse is saying is that God, through the mouth of his servant, King David, by the power of the Holy Spirit, said these words of Psalm 2. So basically saying these words of Scripture, these are the very words of God. We can know what God is saying because Scripture is telling us his words. See, we don't get our ideas about the sovereign God from our, our minds. That's why whenever I preach, I say, open your Bibles, look to the Bible. We get our ideas from Scripture not from our own minds. We don't make this up. We get our ideas from God himself, speaking through his Holy Spirit-inspired words of Scripture. So let's look specifically at the Scripture, at this portion of Psalm 2 quoted in the prayer. It says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. What this psalm does is it predicts for us that there will be opposition. 
opposition to the Lord, and opposition to his anointed. And that opposition will be to God and to his Christ. So that Christ is actually anointed. The word anointed here, that's what Christ means. And this is the very opposition. So, so the psalm predicts there's going to be opposition, and this is the very thing that they are experiencing. It's Peter and John and the disciples are now facing this opposition. But if you remember Psalm 2, if you heard, when Mike read it, it's clear that this opposition to Christ and, and to, to the Lord and to his anointed will be futile. Verse 4 of Psalm 2. This is one of my favorite verses of all scripture. It gives the Lord's reaction to this opposition to Christ. And this is the same opposition that disciples were facing. This is the same opposition that we face, those of us who are in Christ's face. And it says, verse 4 of Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. See, the Lord laughs at this opposition. This may be, I, I don't know for sure, I haven't done a, a word study, but this may be the only time in Scripture that tells us that the Lord laughs. He laughs at the foolishness of those who are coming against him. I, it it kind of makes me think of a small child you know, who's, who, who thinks they can intimidate their, their parents by doing, to do what he wants, by, by acting tough, only to see his parents laugh at him. And, and this reminds me, I remember years ago, Sarah, when she was a little baby, she was acting all tough and sassy to Lynn, and Lynn just laughed right at her. And she said to her, you think you're a big, strong muscle guy, but you're really a little peanut. And that's where my nickname for Sarah, I still call her nut to this day. Because she was this little, tiny little girl looking up there, acting like she's a big, tough, strong guy. And we just said, you're a little peanut. And we just kind of laughed and, and dismissed her. That's what God is doing. He just laughs and dismissed her. You're not even a peanut. You're nothing. See, Psalm 2 is clear that those who oppose the Lord he will break them. He will break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then verse 27 and, and, and 28, make this connection of this scripture, Psalm 2, with the current persecution that the disciples are experiencing. So verses 27 and 28 say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, so these are the rulers, along with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, as they're praying, it's becoming clear to them, to the disciples, that what they're experiencing is not something out of the ordinary. It's not something that took God by surprise. This persecution is something that was predicted in God's word. It was all according to God's plan as communicating to them in Scripture. And do you see how comforting this would be? Do you see how this realization would completely dissipate any fear that they were facing because of this persecution? It's all according to God's plan. It was temporary, and this persecution would be avenged by God himself. But even more than that, the persecution would lead to the spread of the gospel. It would lead to God's glory. And we're going we're to look at this more later on as we study through, chat, through Acts, but this persecution actually dispersed the disciples so that they would be able to fulfill their calling to take the, the, the gospel beyond Jerusalem to Samaria and, and Judea and to the ends of the earth. So all this that we looked at so far in this prayer, this is, this is really the, the groundwork. This is what was necessary to get the disciples into this right frame of mind to even know what to pray. Now in verses 29 and 30, now we see the petitions that they make. We already looked a little bit about um, verse 29, this, this petition for boldness. 29 says, 
And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And this petition is actually answered before it's even asked. See, boldness, freedom from fear, is needed to even make this petition. And this freedom from fear comes from the prayer itself. See, as they focus on God and his power and his promises in Scripture, as the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to his providential ordering of all their circumstances and fulfillment of Scripture, they can't help but be changed. And this is simply the natural result of of the act of of praying a a God-centered, Scripture-filled prayer. It naturally dissipates any fear. See, a frequently overlooked and and underappreciated facet of prayer is that prayer most often changes us, that is, those of us who pray, more than it changes the circumstances. Say it again, our prayer more often changes us than it changes the circumstances. See, the outward circumstances of the disciples, it hasn't changed. They're still in the same situation. They still have the same threats against them, same dangers. But their inner dispositions, their inner disposition changed mightily. They're no longer fearful, but now they are full of power. Now they are full of boldness. But the prayer for boldness is is still necessary because without a a continued connection to God, a a constant mindfulness of Him in everything we do, and I call this is basically what it means to pray without ceasing, is to have that constant mindfulness of God while we go throughout our day. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. Without this, we will fall back into this default mode. This default mode of focusing ourselves, our own weakness, on our own problems, and not focusing on God. And this will kill any boldness that we have, and it will bring us right into the bondage that we have to fear and anxiety. So we must pray, when we have this boldness, that we will continue to have this boldness. We will continue to speak God's word with all boldness. And then we trust, we trust the Holy Spirit that he will grant this petition. He will will grant us the grace to focus on him and not on our problems. But boldness is not the only petition we see here. It's not even the primary petition we see here in this prayer. We see a second, and I would say even more primary, more important petition in verse 30. And so this is continuing on the petition. He says, while you stretch out your hand to heal, And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And this second petition is a prayer for God to continue to do mighty works. The same mighty works that got Peter and John in trouble in the first place. That the Lord would continue to heal those in bondage to sin and bondage to the effects of sin on this fallen world. That he would continue to perform these signs and wonders that he had been doing in the name of Jesus. And that God would make himself known. And God would draw many people to himself. In other words, this is a prayer for God to be glorified. It's a prayer for God to do what only God can do. To act in a way that all would see that he alone is God. And that he alone is worthy of all praise. And as Christians, this is our prayer. This is our goal. This is our goal that God is glorified. And how is he glorified? He's glorified in his people. He's glorified through the events that he, that he sovereignly ordains. Events seen through our, our fleshly eyes will, will bring us fear, will cause us to, to have anxiety. Seen through fleshly eyes will cause us to completely overwhelm us. But when they're seen through eyes of faith, when they're seen not in, in light of our own weakness, and not alone of their own massiveness, but seen in light of who God is, then these events are a means that we can use to glorify God. 
And again, in this we can be bold. In this we can be filled with joy. The last verse in this section, verse 31, we see God's supernatural validation that he's heard the prayer of his disciples and that he has answered this prayer. Verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And I believe that there was a a real physical shaking that the disciples had experienced in response to this prayer, providing evidence that the prayer was indeed answered by God. And this may have been an earthquake, but more likely what I think it was, was a mighty rushing wind, like the mighty rushing wind that we saw in in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church during Pentecost. And we need to keep in mind, the events recorded in the book of Acts, they are not normative for the church age. The book of Acts describes a transitional period. So in these events that we read in Acts, God is using the miraculous physical signs in order to confirm the miraculous spiritual realities. He's using these miraculous miracles to confirm these spiritual miracles that are taking place. And as I've often stressed during the sermon series in Acts, now that we have a completed canon of Scripture, now that the New Testament is complete, We no longer need these miraculous physical signs as confirmation of the miraculous spiritual realities. See, Scripture itself is our confirmation. In other words, the miraculous physical events that we read about in the book of Acts, they are not normative for the church age. But the miraculous spiritual realities, those are the ones that are normative. So when we pray these God-centered, Scripture-filled, God-glorifying prayers... We don't expect to feel the room to shake. We don't don't expect to to have that physical confirmation. But we can expect. We can expect to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And even, even this is not entirely accurate. The reality is if you're a believer, you already are filled with the Holy Spirit. There's not an additional filling with the Holy Spirit that we experience any further than the filling that we already have. But rather what we have is a new and awakened awareness of the Holy Spirit that was previously not realized prior to the prayer. It was an awareness resulting from the the prayer that enabled the disciples to continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And my friends, this is their antidote to fear. This is our antidote to fear. I mean, you heard the statistics that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. We all know it's true. We all feel it. We experience the stress, the anxiety, and the fear of living in this fallen world. But we have an antidote to this fear. So just to recap, let me just summarize what it is, what what we've heard. First, we need to develop this prayer reflex. We need to have this prayer reflex. When we experience stress, we need to first and foremost take it to God. We don't want to wait till we've completely made a mess of things on our own, failed to fix it on our own, only compounded, only made the stress worse. We need to go to God first. That's first. Second, we need to begin these prayers by focusing on God, on who he is on his power, on his sovereignty, on his majesty, on his beauty, on his goodness. We have to have a a picture in our mind of God's attributes, of the God to whom we are praying. That's second. Third, we have to realize that if we are in Christ, if we are in Christ, if we are a new creation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then God is for us. Then all things work together for good for us. God is on our side, and all this power and all this sovereignty is working for us, is working for our ultimate and eternal good. That's third. 
Fourth, we need to know Scripture. We need to pray Scripture. We need to study Scripture. Because Scripture alone objectively shows us who God is, what He is like, what His will is, what He is doing. And Scripture alone is the connection that we have to God's reality. So that's fourth. And fifth, we have to look to the Holy Spirit. We'll look to the Holy Spirit not only to illuminate Scripture, but also to apply Scripture by showing us how Scripture connects to our current reality, to our current circumstances. And six, we need to pray for boldness. Boldness in our witness for Christ and his word. And this is the antidote to fear. But even more importantly, we need to pray for God to be glorified in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And then, then he will open our eyes on how our current situation is being used to glorify him. And we can praise him whatever situation we're in. And this too, this too takes away our fear. And it fills us with joy as we recognize how our trials are bringing him glory. And my friends, when we do this, we will be filled with, with a supernatural awareness of the Holy Spirit's power and his presence. And that will further increase our boldness. And that will further increase our joy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, each of us, each of us is filled with fear. Each of us is filled with, with anxieties and things that keep us away from you. But Father, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will give us the boldness that we need. When we face these fears, we will go to you. We will look to you. We will see what you are like. We will contemplate your character, your attributes, and know that all that power, all that might is for us in Christ. And there is nothing that we have to be fear of, afraid of. As Scripture tells us, if God is for us, who can be against us? And Father, we pray that you will be glorified through whatever trials, whatever difficulties you allow to happen to us, that we will be faithful to you and that you will be glorified. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.